good morning again. Good to be here. The singing's been awesome. Isn't it awesome to know who we're singing about? It's awesome. So looking forward to our update coming from Rebecca and Andrew here here in a few minutes. Uh, definitely been praying for them. I think I contacted you a couple weeks ago, and today just worked out. So pretty pretty awesome. Looking forward to that. So I'm going to turn the service over to them and just ask that you give them your full attention. Well, good morning. good morning. It's good to see so many familiar faces and people we know that are praying for us and, and love us and care about us. And that's a, a, a huge blessing to each of us. Uh, those that don't know us, my name is Andrew Williams. This is my wife, Rebecca. Um, we're on staff with Crew in Central Ohio, getting to serve college students, helping them grow in a relationship with Jesus and experience a, a genuine walk with him all through college and hopefully preparing them for a life of faithful service to Christ well beyond their time in college. So wanted to give some time to share what God's doing through our ministry in Central Ohio. Rebecca's going to give some updates. And then I can't help but think of just even the songs that Santana was singing and the, the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today. Um, I think that's the Lord's hand of the connecting of these things. So I'm excited to get into the Word with you as well. So I'm going to pass it to Rebecca to share a little bit about our ministry and some highlights. And we'll have some stories all throughout. So hope you're encouraged by our time. Well, good morning. Thank you so much for having us both. I'm going to share a little bit about how we've been spending our summer since we work with college students over the summers. College students go home. So so what, what does our ministry look like over the summer? Well, during the summer, I think, is one of the things that crew does best, and that is summer missions. Um, Andrew and I were both profoundly impacted by summer missions as students and love to get to be a part of that now. So this summer, Andrew and I were in Ocean City, New Jersey um, for six weeks with the summer mission, a team of about 60 students, about 20 staff members from all over the country um, doing evangelism and discipleship. Um, And the heart behind summer mission is a time to truly equip college students um, and cast the vision for not just what does it look like to follow Jesus now, but what does it look like to follow Jesus for a lifetime, um, not just in the United States, but across the world and even casting a vision for a heart of parts of the world that do not have access to the gospel the way we do here and growing their hearts for that Um, So Ocean City, New Jersey was actually the very first summer mission that crew started in 1967. Um, There was a pastor at a Baptist church that saw that Ocean City went from a population of about 12,000 locals um, throughout the year to during peak season in the summer with all of the tourists Um, peak season going to a population of about 100,000. And this pastor just said, my church does not have the resources to reach all these people who are here. So reached out to crew and said, hey, why don't you bring your college students here and equip them, do evangelism and discipleship and try to to reach the lost here in Ocean City. Um, So we got to be a part of that incredible gospel legacy this summer. And I'll share a little bit about how I personally was really impacted this summer, as well as a story of one of my students. 
Um, but I think I kind of went into this summer like, you know, I've been on staff for a little while. I've done summer missions. I've done spring break trips. You know, we know how to go out there, have spiritual conversations with people. Um, but I, I was telling the four girls that I was discipling, you know, I really believe that God, our God is a God who will do the thing that brings him the most glory. And the way that he did that for me was that I was really struggling to have gospel conversations. We'd get out there, we'd initiate with people, we'd have spiritual conversations, and that they would kind of like, ah, like, no thanks, don't really want to hear more today. And I'm taking my, my girls out, you know, four or five times a week. We're going sharing out on the boardwalk. And, and they would tell me these incredible gospel conversations I got to have that they were sharing with people, but not with me. And I, I just, day after day, for about the first two weeks we were there, was just praying every day, Lord, would you give me an opportunity to share the gospel with someone today? And I, I had invited my, my students as well as our coworkers, like, hey, like, I haven't gotten to share the full gospel yet this summer. Would you pray that today would be the day? Would you pray that today I'd get to share the gospel with someone? And for about two weeks, we, we had that prayer that I would get to share the gospel. And eventually I did. And it was, it was amazing, such an answer to prayer. But I remember debriefing with my, my Bible study with it afterwards saying, you know, that is the thing that God did that brought him the most glory. Because often in my day-to-day life, even going to campus at, at Capital University and Wittenberg University, I, I confess there are many times I'm not going to campus saying, Lord, would you give me the opportunity to share the gospel with someone? So that was just really refreshing for my heart to be brought to that place of just prayer and desperation and crying out to the Lord. Like, give me the opportunity to share the good news of the hope that we have in Christ with someone today. Um, and then I wanted to share a little bit about one of my students. So Andrew and I were both discipling uh, three guys, four girls on this trip, just got to come alongside them all summer. Had never met them before. We're kind of just paired up with students who are on this trip. So I was with four girls from all different universities across the country um, who had just finished their sophomore year um, and just got to have a front row seat of the transformation that God does in the lives of these college students. So one of those girls, her name was Lauren. Um, her university actually doesn't have a crew movement but her older siblings had both been really involved with crew at their schools and had very positive experiences, and she wanted to come on a summer mission. Um, so she grew up in the church, but had had some just negative experiences, nothing, um, nothing, nothing traumatic or toxic in that way, but just kind of like, man, I want to serve Jesus, but I am not finding a community at my school of students who are excited about that. And she had felt very discouraged, pretty lonely, even in some ways, like, man, like, where do my giftings and my personality, where does that fit in in the kingdom of God? And she was pretty honest with me our very first time meeting, like, hey, like, this has been my story. It's kind of hard for me to trust people and and to share my story because I felt a little, like, just neglected or, or dismissed in the past. And I just kind of asked her, like, hey, like, I want to I care for you this summer. I want to dialogue about God's word with you and just help you fall more in love with Jesus. Like, would you trust me with this? And the relationship that the Lord brought between us over the summer was just so amazing. In, in six weeks, like, the love that I had for my girls and they had for me was really unique and really sweet. Um, I, almost to the fact of like, we're leaving, and I'm like, I'm so sad to be leaving my girls, but watching Lauren's life transformed, watching her 
be burdened by the realities that there are people who who don't know Christ. And there are parts of the world where people couldn't couldn't go to church this morning, even if they wanted to. Uh, I just watched her heart break for that. And, and I, as we were doing evangelism on the boardwalk, I watched her go from, okay, I'm going to watch you do this. I'm going to learn. Um, you can kind of model this to me. I've never done this before. To by the end of the summer, just really taking the initiative and leading the conversations and relating and caring for these people so incredibly well. Um, and, and part of what we do with summer missions um, we actually hand over the entire mission to the students. So the staff are there for six weeks, and we quite literally hand them the keys and say, this is your mission now. Um, and all of our students have a different leadership role to kind of shepherd and care for the team. Um, Lauren was an action group leader, which was a, a Bible study. So she finished the summer actually leading her own little group of women and shepherding and caring for them. So watching her go from, I've never really experienced true Christian community before to seeing her just truly blossom, be so loved and to, and loving others so well, to be fully embraced by that type of community. That's just so transformational. I, I know for Andrew and I in college, that was a big part of how we got to see who Jesus was, was the love and the care of Christian college students who just so embraced us. So we just had a truly, truly terrific summer with our students. We miss them a lot. We're very proud of them. But it makes us really excited for what we get to do back on campus in just a week. Our, our campuses are starting. So it was a wonderful summer. And we're excited to, to see God, what, what he's going to do this semester. I get kind of a... Uh inside peak because I get to do this ministry alongside Rebecca and it's a real blessing for me as a husband to get to see my wife serve and love these women so well and um, if you're wondering like how our ministry is set up like I am investing in in men so often and we're doing like men and women groups so often as well but Rebecca the same end is engaging with these women in ways that they're getting to grow and take steps of faith and experience like gospel transformation. And this isn't like, oh, Andrew does this ministry stuff and then Rebecca is like there. It's like, no, she's in it with me. And like, I think that's just an incredible blessing to get to share with her in those things. Um, and, and I think of the one story with Lauren, but then we could rattle off five, 10, 15 more stories of other students, both this summer and students we get to work with on campus that we get to see, walk with Jesus. They didn't know what it meant to have a relationship with Christ. Um, And we get to see them understand what it means to rely on God with their whole life. It's not just, oh, I show up on on a Sunday and I pray prayer and I'm, and I'm good, but it's my whole life being transformed by the gospel and every moment of my life now being shaped by how do I live according to what Jesus has created in me, has transformed me to become. And we're going to actually consider as we spend some time in the Word, and I'll, I'll share a story also from this summer near the end here, but we're going to spend some time in the Word and consider kind of two questions, and it's pretty much the same question but reversed Um, So the question is, how does our reliance on God affect the way we view the world? 
Or, kind of to flip it, how does the way we view the world affect our reliance on God? So we think about going about our lives, all of the things we have to do, tasks, responsibilities, family, and different commitments. And the way that we view those things in the world around us, it, it does shape kind of the, the outlook we have towards God. But then maybe even more importantly, the ways that we rely on God and cling to him should and will affect the way we view the world and everything we do. Um, I was thinking of just a number of different scales by which we, we think about the, the world around us and our circumstances. And kind of on the large scale, we, we look at the world around us and there's political unrest and there's wars and, and there's disasters. And, and there's so many circumstances that, that grieve us if we see in the news or maybe we're more connected to. But then more on like a personal scale, we, we have children going off to college and to high school and entering into the workforce, into the military and maybe we're, we're short finances and there's a new school year started and, and all of these things that start to hit home and you feel these of, okay, am, am I going to rely on God here? Is this something that I can actually trust the Lord for in this moment? But then we just get into the, the small scale. It's how will I get everything done today that I need to do? I have a laundry list of things I need to accomplish and how am I going to accomplish all of these things? And I think that question of how does our reliance on God affect the way we view the world plays into each of these scales. And the way we think about these things can really be shaping. And, and there's a, an outcome that we see in Scripture that, that speaks towards this reality. And we're actually going to spend some time looking at an Old Testament story that I came upon through a book that I was reading earlier this summer. Um, and, and I'd read it before, but the way that this author told the story was, was so like capturing that it really caught my attention. And even thinking about the things that we've shared, even, uh, even this morning, of in the, in the midst of these hard things, like how do we look to God, like the Lord being our rock on which we stand. I think all of these things are going to ring true as we consider this story. So if you'll turn with me um, to 2 Kings will be in the sixth chapter. And there's a number of things going on in 2 Kings, and I won't be able to give all the time it would be necessary to unpack the, the full context. But we're going to pick up specifically at verse 8. And we're going to read one section. We'll pause, consider what's going on in this storyline. But to give an overarching view first... Um, the Syrian Empire is a pretty dominant force in the world during this time. And they are kind of taking aim at whatever other power might be present and executing their force accordingly. Because they want to be the dominant power. And Israel is no exemption to that. God's people are under fire um, from the Syrian Empire here. And so we pick up starting at verse 8, and we'll start to see what takes place. So it says, verse 8, chapter 6 of 2 Kings. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God, this is Elisha, the prophet, the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. 
Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of the servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, Surely he is in Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out there, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So we pause here to kind of take inventory of what's going on in this story. So Syria is having their way with the whole area at the time. They are the dominant power. They're going in and taking over lands and peoples. But there's a thorn in the king of Syria's side that is Israel. For some reason, he cannot get into Israel the way that he desires. And it's because this man of God, Elisha, has the attention of God. And God is giving him inside information of knowing where Syria is going and where they're plotting to attack Israel. And this really bothers this king of Syria. Like, think if you're like, I don't know, like playing Battleship. And you've got, like, a kid running around, and they run over to one side, see where your tanks are, and come back around and tell you. It's like, well, that's annoying. Like, stop it. But this is large scale. (laughs) Um, But you think about this, and we realize that this isn't just, like, casual exchange here that's happening. Like, the God of the universe is giving, I love the title that's given to Elisha, the man of God. This information that God's people are being protected here in this context. But we're still not sure exactly where this like protection is, is going to lead to. Because all of a sudden, now the king of Syria knows that this guy Elisha is the source of his problems. And so he says, okay, well, I have a whole army. I'll send my whole army after this one guy, Elisha. We get him out of there, and then we're kind of in Fast City. We're, we're good to go. But what we don't realize, and what the Syrian king doesn't realize, is that God is even bigger than what he could even begin to imagine. And so then enters this, this servant, which is a, a servant that would like journey and travel with Elisha and help in different ways. But... I, the way that the author of this book, as I was reading earlier this summer, um, told the story, it was like early one morning, the, the servant wakes up and he's uh, got to use the restroom. So he's getting out of bed, kind of wandering out, um, out of his tent to, to look around and kind of get started with his day, maybe before his, his first cup of coffee or whatever. And all of a sudden he looks up and there is an entire Syrian army surrounding his camp, surrounding his home. And he turns right around, goes back into his master and says, Master, we're, we're surrounded. What do we do? And, and you, you think about that. And I, and I read the, the line there in verse 15. It says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And it almost comes off as kind of casual. Like, well, what, what, what shall we do? But I think there's some pretty significant fear here when you are surrounded by an entire army 
and that army is coming after you. This servant is really struggling. Okay, what, what do you have in mind here? Because they're coming after us. Like we are their target. So undoubtedly, there is fear. There is doubt. Maybe even this, this servant is trying to fight for control. Where he's trying to say, well, maybe I can control the circumstance to, to make it easier to take matters into my own hands. And I can't help but think of our own position in a situation like that. When we are maybe up against something really hard, we're facing something that doesn't seem manageable by our own ability, and undoubtedly we move towards fear, we move towards control, maybe we move towards just clamming up and hiding. But in some way or another, we all, in our, in our nature, kind of start to grapple with this control or this fear. And, and I think in some regard, it points towards perhaps a small view of God. Maybe we don't realize that, that the God of the universe is, is powerful. He's capable. Maybe we don't even realize that, that God desires to, to enter in or to be present in the midst of those situations. Maybe we are seeing the circumstances of this life as ultimate rather than seeing the God of the universe and his eternal power as ultimate. Somewhere in there, we all drift into this perspective, and myself included, of hiding away, fighting for control, fear. And we can put ourselves in the place of this servant. Alas, my master, what shall we do? And so then we go on, and Elisha, the man of God, is quick to to answer. They're starting up again at verse 16. So Elisha answered, do not fear For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. And we've got to be quick to catch this. The horses and chariots that were there as the Syrian army are now being surrounded by horses and chariots of fire. This is the angel host army. This is the God of the universe that we've been talking about. His army is present, surrounding this entire army of the Syrians, completely dwarfing what this army was even attempting to do. There's no chance, as you consider the realities of the spiritual forces that God is accessible to, there's nothing that can compare There's nothing that can compare to the power and authority of our God. Our God. This is, we're reading this Old Testament passage. This is the same God. This is the God that is still present and powerful and active today. In the midst of our circumstances. As we look at this, you, you see the servant's eyes opened. And it's not that he's like physically blind, but he's spiritually blind to a reality that he has not ever seen before. There is a blindness to the fact that the God that Elisha, the man of God, serves and worships is a powerful God. A God that is not absent. He's a God that is not far removed or not negligent or uncaring, but he's actually faithful and true and present and near. 
And so to summarize even what goes on from this story, and we'll continue to kind of unpack, the story goes on and the Syrians, upon Elisha's prayer, are struck with blindness and they are led away from Israel. They're actually led to Samaria, where Israel has some like authority and presence. And the king of Israel asks, uh, asks the Lord, like, should we kill these, these Syrians? And God responds and says, no, don't kill them. Actually, feed them and send them on their way. So they put together this great feast for these Syrians that had just come to attack Elisha. Produce this great feast. They receive their sight and they're sent on their way. And the story goes on there at the end of verse 23. It says, then he prepared a great feast for them. After they ate and drank, he sent them away. And they went to their master. So the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. There's a reality as I think about this that had maybe the order been to to kill these Syrian raiders, that the next round of of Syrian raiders was soon behind. And in God's wisdom, maybe beyond even our human wisdom, there's a meal provided. And the enemy that once was now becomes somewhat of an ally, if even for a temporary purpose. And they're sent on their way never to bother Israel again. And and we'll come back to that thought, but I want to even consider who is that enemy that we often think of in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the, the difficulty, in the midst of, I don't know how to get past whatever circumstance exists in my life. We kind of have to convince ourselves, okay, the enemy is maybe not this person that's getting on my nerves, or the enemy is not um, my spouse or my friend that our friendship is on the rocks, or maybe even my, my financial or just like life circumstance. The enemy is not there, but the enemy is something other. The enemy, Satan, is seeking to deceive and to steal and kill and destroy. But we so often convince ourselves that the enemy is, is a person, or the enemy is something that like, we have to like, go to bat with against ourselves. And yet, if we ourselves can have the spiritual eyes to see, we can see that the enemy is not those people. The enemy is something far greater, but not nearly as great as the God that we serve. Amen. That there is no authority that can surpass the power of our God. Amen. And I think there's something that we can take from this story. Maybe we're not walking out of our home before we've had our coffee and surrounded by an army. But sometimes it feels that way when we have life circumstances coming our way that just seem insurmountable. But there is a truth to be had here that Elijah had a view of God that dwarfed any threat. That This is not to say that, that we're exempt from from danger like this is a, a real danger that was present but there's a promise that we serve a god who's promised to never leave us or forsake us Amen. that there there's going to be hard things and there might even be suffering and pain and strife clearly in this story elisha and his servant were spared from any of that and it doesn't mean that we are always going to be sustained or, or saved from that but it does promise that god will care and be near and sustain us and protect us and be with us in the midst. And so it brings me to, the, to, to consider 
kind of in the midst of fill in the blank, do we see God as, like, how do we see God? Are we seeing God in the way that we can rely on him? Or are we seeing God in a very small way? So in the midst of, of fear and doubt, do we see God as uncaring? Or do we see God as the good shepherd who cares about his sheep because he loves them? In the midst of, of hardship and loss, do we see God as, as cold and distant? Or do we see him as present and helpful in times of need? In the midst of sorrow and pain, do we see God as, as unable to help or just not even desiring to help? Or do we see God as, as the comforter? Let us not neglect who the real enemy is. There, there is an enemy that seeks to distract. I think, honestly, I think Satan is more interested in even just distracting us or pacifying us just to make us like comfortable in our Christian walk so that we are unhelpful in the cause of Christ than he is of completely annihilating us. I think he's just content letting us be kind of stale, lukewarm, mellow, uninteresting Christians when he knows that if we actually had those spiritual eyes to see, there would be no stopping the work of our great God. Amen. And the enemy wants to blind us of those things. As I think about this idea of reliance on God, because we asked the question at the beginning, how does our reliance on God affect the way we view the world? Reliance on God is not merely an intellectual exercise. I think it can be so easy as we sit down, maybe we're reading our Bible in the morning, or we are coming to church, or hearing a, a, a song on the radio, and it's, it's easy to like put our minds in a place momentarily of reliance, and then all of a sudden the, the waves start to crash, and we start to get hit by any number of challenges and circumstances And all of a sudden, that reliance on God is the last thing that's on our mind. So reliance on God cannot simply be an intellectual exercise. I actually think we were created to be desperate for our God. That it is this clinging to the promises of God that are all over the scriptures and saying, God, I am desperate for you. Even in my best moments, when I feel like in my head I've got things figured out, I need you so, so much. I am so in need of your care and your love and your tenderness and your nearness that if it were any further from me, I would just fall apart because we would. Like, we need God so much. But yet we often function out of... uh, I can handle it my own way. I have my own control. I've got my own plan in mind. But God wants us to be desperate for him, wants us to to long for him in such a way because that is when he gets to show us. He gets to give us the, the eyes to see the host of angel armies surrounding. We get to see the, the horses and chariots, but we get to see his son. We get to see Jesus on display on a cross who went to the greatest lengths. None of us would have, could have gone to the lengths that Christ the Son went to. And and I think of the passage in 2 Timothy 1. Um, We'll just reference this quickly. 
It says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And that spirit is not something just kind of conceptual on paper. It's literally the spirit of God in us. That when we place our faith in Christ, knowing that his death on the cross and his resurrection was sufficient to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And when we accept that truth, we are given the spirit of God that is that nearness. It is that presence. It is that help and that hope in all circumstances. And that is really good news for everyone that claims to know Christ today. There's a a story that felt so connected to, even as I was thinking about this this text, Um, and this is a story that I can't even begin to consider what my faith would look like in in such a context as this, but we all know uh, of the war that's going on in Ukraine. And the, the difficulties that exist there. And it's kind of maybe faded from the, the news stream a little bit now. But it continues on. And the difficulties remain. And this summer, Rebecca and I got to be a part of an all-crew staff conference um, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And while we were there, they bring in lots of speakers and communicators. And even just updates on the, the state of the ministry around the world. And we were fortunate to hear from a man named Sasha, and he is the national director of crew in Ukraine. And he came in, and you wouldn't know anything about this guy in passing, just a humble, quiet guy, but they had him on stage sharing what was going on. And and with tears in his eyes, he's giving an update of what's going on in the country that of the multiple, I think it's two, three hundred crew staff that are actively in Ukraine, 90% of them are displaced. There's a number of them that are actually on the front lines fighting because they fit the age range of being required to go um, and and fight, and they they went willingly to, to serve their country. But in the midst of that, ministry is still happening. Um, the story that he told was realizing the need um, of, of the people in Ukraine in the midst of so much devastation. They started raising funds to build, not build, um, to put together these boxes of food. There were these yellow boxes, um, maybe similar to the boxes you guys are going to put together with uh, Second Harvest. Um, these boxes of food that are going to be resourced out throughout the country. And not simply are they putting together these boxes, but this was a kind of a four-week campaign that they had put together where each week they were sharing an aspect of the gospel on the covers of these boxes. So the first week, there was a heart, and it was like the symbol of a heart. And with that heart, there was the, the passages that talk of the love of Christ um, and God's love for us. And when you are... In a war-ridden nation, a war-riddled nation, the, the love of Christ probably lands pretty softly on your heart, wouldn't you say? And the next week, there's the, the same boxes, but this week has a division symbol on it. And that division speaks towards, because of our sin nature, we are divided from a holy God. We are separated from a God who desires relationship, but because of our sin, we choose to go our own independent way, and that relationship with God that we're created for is broken. But then week three rolls around, and there's a cross. And we see that that Christ is the one who bridges the gap, that we are no longer 
defined by our sin once we have placed our faith in Jesus. And then the fourth week, there's a question mark. And that question is, are you desiring to place your faith in Christ? And, and they're telling stories of these boxes going out and people hearing the gospel, some of, them, some of them for the first time, in a time in their life like no other, when war has crippled their nation and their families and their children are displaced but the gospel is landing softly on people's hearts and people are coming to know him. And I am reminded that you don't have to be in a war-torn nation to know that the love of Christ is the best news that we could ever have. Amen. And for those of us that, that know that, it is all the more a, a call to be ambassadors of that truth, that we take that with us, as Rebecca shared near the beginning, just the reminder that this, this prayer, that God give me the opportunity to share the gospel with someone, it's not just a prayer for missionaries, it's a prayer for everyone who calls himself a believer. God, would you give me the opportunity to share the good news of Christ today? And I think that news is pertinent and accessible and desired by the people we meet here now, every day, as we go to the grocery store, as we go to lunch, as we engage our, our, our work, our, our, uh, the people we work with. Um, what's the word for that? Our employees? Co-workers, that's it. Co-workers. <laughs> Thanks, Rebecca. Um, that that is good news for us even still. Um, and for those that are here and maybe have not actually considered, have I placed my faith in Christ? Let not this moment pass before considering if it's something that could truly penetrate your heart. Because there is a God who's got a host of angel armies that is powerful in whatever circumstance you're in. But he's not so powerful that you don't get to see and experience his love because that love was demonstrated on a cross for you. That in the midst of our sin and the things that we hide and we try to shy away from, we, we are lost and in need of, of a saving that we cannot accomplish on our own. And yet Christ afforded it for us by laying down his life and rising in victory. And that can be ours. We can receive that. We can know that. It's not just an intellectual thing. It's a heart transformational reality. And we take that with us as we go. Um, let me pray, and I'll hand it off to Bob. Jesus, we thank you for the truths of your word. We thank you that you can give us spiritual eyes to see. God, we pray that you would do that. And God, even when we cannot see the, the fullness of what you're doing in the circumstances around us, we can still rely on you. God, we are desperate for you. We long to know you more, to experience your promises and your care and to walk faithfully with you. God, I pray for those in, in the circumstances that feel overwhelming, whether they are a teacher preparing for a school year, or a student preparing to go to classes, or off to college, or, or just a new season of life in the midst of loss, or hardship, or trial. God, I pray that you would be that very present help in times of need, that we would be able to cling to you, to rest in you, not simply when it's convenient, but at all times, knowing that it is the way in which you've designed us to live. 
God, we love you. We trust you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.